What do we see play out there? That's caused some consolidation in the space that would have happened over a five-year period anyway, but it forced it to happen within a 10-month period. So it was very, very collapsed. Welcome to Roof Talks, spirited conversation at the intersection of community, technology, and shared living. I'm Michael, and today we are talking about the impact of co-living on the residential living segment with Susan Jackson. As Managing Director at Cushman & Wakefield, Susan is leadingly shaping the co-living scene in the US and helping the industry scale. Together we'll be covering topics like what are the current co-living trends in the US, what's the impact of co-living on residential living, and what's the role that technology can play in all this. Hi Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to being here with us on Roof Talks and speaking about co-living in the US. It's my pleasure to be here today with you. Thank you for including me. Within Roof Talks, we always have a small tradition that we like to kick us off with a special drink that has a special meaning for our guests. So um, what is a drink that is very memorable for you? Um, as a family, an extended family group, my siblings, my parents, the grandchildren, everybody, we enjoy the Caribbean very much and Ooh. go as often as we can. We're big sailors, scuba divers, snorkelers, tennis, and golf players. Ah, and nice. so because we like the Caribbean so much, let's, my, one of my favorite drinks is anything with rum in it, but particularly a dark and stormy. Uh, dark and stormy is great. And as it happens, like by chance or magic, <laughs> I have something similar here, right? Like, so very warm welcome once again to Roof Talks. Good to have you here. And let's cheer to the conversation. And to a prosperous and healthy 2022. Exactly. And that's true. Yeah. Cheers. All the best. Eh? Thank you. Never again miss an episode of Roof Talks. Subscribe now at obeyo.com slash rooftalks and receive every new episode right into your inbox. Also, we'll be raffling away prizes among all our subscribers. Listen until the very end of this episode to find out what we are raffling away this time. We all know that Susan is one of the, the, the thought leaders, actually, one of the most active persons, if I might say so, in the US who has been like really shaping co-living over the last years and, and actually real estate over the last three decades. And um, so for, for us, this is always like one of the big question marks, right? Like, so how did you get into real estate in the first place? So um, it's a wandering path to get to real estate. My deg undergraduate degree is from the University of Illinois in finance. And my master's work was from Essex University in Colchester, England as a Rotary mm. International Fellow. And I was always interested in the numbers, but didn't think I would do very well sitting behind a desk all day, every day. <laughs> I had more energy than three people combined should have. Oh, and then that's true. For yeah. one person. <laughs> and so I found a job in the hotel business and I loved the hotel business because there was no desk and you were interfacing with clients um, and guests and learning about, you know, what made their stays work and what, made their stays not work. And the hotel I worked for was being renovated. And I realized very quickly, while I love the guests, I really love the real estate part of it. Uh -huh. And how do you take something and make something new out of it? So I loved the renovation part. Um, from there, I went into the real estate development world of actually building new construction buildings, basically apartments, hotels, and condominiums. I'd never... Mm -hmm really worked in the office and retail and industrial space. 
I was much more interested in the space where people interact every day, um, either in their daily work or their daily lives, yeah. their intimate lives, or you know, on vacation. And from that, um, I, I I decided that uh, in the downturn, I really wanted in two thousand seven. I really wanted to work for myself. Hmm. I realized I wasn't. I was a. Uh, I was a uh, better. Um, off on my own than listening to somebody tell me how they thought things should work. <laughs> um, and uh, in a very entrepreneurial way, I've started a couple of businesses, some in the fintech world that we yeah. exited quite successfully, some in the development world, and now in this brokerage capacity. And so, you know, it's been, it's been a wander to get to today, but it's been very um, systematic in how you add skill sets. So how do you finance them? How do you build them? How do you sell them? How do you design them so people like living in them or staying in them? Yeah. And it's been quite rewarding, actually, to see in the last 10 years, particularly in the multifamily space, yeah. um, buildings come around to actually suit the resident instead of building what you can get financed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and that is also like the perfect introduction into co-living, of course, right? Like, so talking about like uh, building for the people in a way. So like, like how did that happen? How, how did you get passionate about co-living? Well, so a couple of things. Um, when I started my own real, real estate brokerage company, um, my first hire was a broker and that was an okay hire. But my second hire was a data analyst with a mm -hmm. master's degree from the University of Chicago. And it became very you know, we were very curious about what does urban living look like? And mm. we realized very quickly from the data that your rent was growing at 3% a year, but your income was only growing at 1% a year. And that was an ever expanding triangle that was not a sustainable personal business model. Yeah. Coupled with that at the time, I had kid, um, stepchildren leaving school, going into the work there, going <laughs> into the workforce in Midtown Manhattan and in uh, LA. And it was uh, eye-opening, shocking how much their rent was compared to what they were being paid. Mm. And so, you know, that, that helped us, that helped me at least then say, hey, you know, there's got to be a better alternative than some of the stuff we all lived in when we graduated from college yeah, with, yeah. you know, lead paint on the windowsills and no air conditioning, no dishwasher, no elevator, yeah. always smelled like bug spray. The construction methodology and construction finishes had certainly evolved far enough in the last 30 years to be able to provide new construction housing for young professionals in a more, um, in a more thoughtful, design-oriented way in better locations. And so looking for those alternatives, co-living you know, met a lot of those boxes yeah yeah and, and 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 this is when you started like to become personally interested also in that co-living space i can imagine right it, and it was also interesting because in this space you know co-living is shared living it's micro units it's yeah. a combination of both but what it truly is is an organized way to have a sense of community with roommates either in your shared space or roommates in the in the unit next door that's organized instead of this ad hoc, you know, everybody running around trying to figure it out themselves on Craigslist or yeah. looking at Yelp reviews. It just made a ton of sense that there was a way to do this much more efficiently 
and with a better result for the for the tenant for the resident yeah 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 and of course also with a better result for for the owner the operator and the the, the landlord at the same time right like so because i mean it, it needs to go hand in hand right sure so and you know uh, uh, let me just add one other thing <laughs> i was always the parent who signed yeah. the complete lease okay so if, you know so i was signing <laughs> as the financial guarantor yeah. for a lease for four young professionals of which i hadn't met to and so the conversations with our children about okay i don't know these two from adam they better pay their rent because if they don't you're paying their rent i'm not paying yeah. their rent and yeah. so you know there were parts of this business model that makes so much more sense in terms of you know financial responsibility and housing not just for the resident but also for the building owner yeah no true yeah, true. And then that, that made sense to you, of course, but then there's still like a long step until, well, rallying a, a complete organization like Cushman and Wakefield behind the idea of co-living, right? Like, so like, like, uh, how did that journey go for you? Uh, well, candidly, when I uh, sat in front of a, it's not a committee, but every year you present your business plan with Cushman and Wakefield. When I said, okay, look, I think this co-living space is going to be a global phenomenon. This isn't just a U.S. problem. I, you know, their dense urban living for young professionals is something that, that at an affordable level is certainly something that's lacking across the globe. Absolutely. They said, we don't understand it, but you're passionate about it, so have at it. <laughs> and um, I think is this is... Changed. That was three years ago. That has now changed. Yeah. And Cushman yeah. Wakefield has yeah. uh, been a great partner every step of the way. But yeah. what has changed is now when I say co-living, people are like, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea, as opposed yeah. to I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think this is also like the, 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 the biggest proof that you can get, right? Like, so about like your early vision of like, okay, hey, this is going to be a global thing. And today, I mean, the, the situation looking at the US, what is happening in the co-living segment is, is actually mind blowing, right? Like, so there, there's so much going on. So from your point of view, what are actually the core trends that are playing out in the US in, in co-living right now? So I think we would all agree that during a pandemic, um, dense urban living with potential people you have not met before you start living with them was something a lot of people did not want to talk about. The, yeah. the asset class, this new asset class actually outperformed class A multifamily across the board because it turns yeah. out during a pandemic, you really don't want to live by yourself. Um, yeah. And it's still the cheapest alternative, even to a studio that's substantially marked down in rent. Yeah. Um, what we have seen in the last 10 months is a return of young professionals to urban centers, whether they're working from home or working from the office. Even if their social lives have been crippled, meaning the bars aren't quite open as late or, you know, they, you, know, you have to show vaccinations to get into a restaurant, they still want to be in urban centers with their friends, mm -hmm. sporting events, concerts, outdoors along the lake in, in Chicago, for example, rooftop decks, yeah. you know, birthday parties, all of that stuff, they want to be where their friends are. And I will tell you as a parent, um, we, had, we have three children. We had the most user-friendly child with us during the pandemic. We were both happy to see her go back to Manhattan. I can imagine, like how, how old is she, if I might ask? She is now 28 and she yeah. lived with us four yeah. days short of six months. 
Yeah. And she is a, a delightful period. young woman and the easiest of our children to spend that kind of time with. And she missed her yeah. friends. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And it's great to have family around, but it's also good to have a distance from time to time, right? Like, so I think <laughs> then that's uh, for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and then like, uh, and this is in terms of like the demand for urban living on the, on, uh, on the demand side, right? Like, so, but then looking at the mergers and acquisitions that are happening also in the US, right? Like, so can you provide us some context in terms of what do we see play out there? Um, so let's take a step back for a second. Uh, co-living, uh, roommate living is not a new phenomenon. It's centuries old. Yeah. Um, co-living in mean, in terms of being an organized approach to roommate living is a new phenomenon. As mm -hmm. such, it was driven by young entrepreneurial minds um, mm -hmm. who had, I would use the word, suffered through trying to find roommates and good accommodations themselves. Yeah, yeah. And had a better idea. They were able to have proof. They all, all of them, Ollie, Collective, Common, yeah. Yeah. Star City, X Company, No, yeah. Cohabs, I mean, City Pads, Hamlet. They all had ideas on how this would work. And they all, for the most part, they all raised VC money for their operating companies because these, this co-living um, niche asset class has been driven by techno technological changes. Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. were very early on into remote virtual tours. Very early on, they had software mm -hmm. that was keyless entry. Very early on, they had one touch on your phone, paid your rent, recorded a maintenance request, and signed you up for what I kiddingly call amenities like goat yoga, ravioli making, or <laughs> binding. Yeah. And at the time, let's just remember, this is pre-pandemic. That was virtually unheard of in the multifamily space. And True. so all of these companies, then the operating companies, started looking for real estate. They weren't overly based in real estate. Mm. Now, some of mm. them were. Star City, you know, was vertically integrated. The X company is certainly based in uh, real estate. But the problem becomes how do you expand? Because for VC money, that wants 20 times earnings. Yeah, absolutely. Real estate wants two and a half times earnings. Yeah, it's a big difference. Huh? And, yeah. and so, you know, they were all in expansion mode. They had different business models. You know, Quarters had, um, let's not forget about them. They were a very early mover. Mm -hmm. They had a master lease Uh, mm -hmm. model as opposed to a management agreement model. And, you know, um, I was never a big believer in the master lease um, business model because what you're saying is, hey, if you don't believe in my concept, I'm going to pay you rent anyway, so what do you care? Yeah, But true. if it goes well, the, the owner of the building doesn't get the upside. And if it goes poorly, you're only as good as your letter of credit. And mm -hmm. I am certainly not singling out quarters. They had a great They had some great professionals working there. But what I am saying is, you know, you take all of these, they were all starting to grow at the same time. Star City was starting to expand. Everyone was trying to expand right into the teeth of a global pandemic. And, you know, that's caused this to be, uh, to, that's caused some consolidation in the space that yeah. would have happened over a five-year period anyway, but it forced it to happen within a 10-month period. So it was very, yeah. very collapsed in yeah. terms of that time frame. So we're not surprised to see 
this consolidation, we are saying that it was the quickness of it was fueled by the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and do you do you see that this shakes also the belief in the system um, of like co-living as such? Or do, do you see that like from the investment point of view, the investors are actually saying, okay, well, like, hey, we understand why that happened. We expected it to happen. And it actually helps us to create a more stable uh, launch pad for the next phase. So uh, a couple of points, I guess, around that, that lead to some conclusion. Uh, has it shaken the confidence in the space? There's been a lot of print around before the pandemic, co-living was just catching on on an institutional level mm -hmm. in terms of urban living for young professionals that was small, A, affordable. I would say we're back to that same level today of yeah. institutional interest. They yeah. are not as dependent on the operator today because of the pandemic large traditional multifamily property managers like Lincoln, like Graystar, yeah. like Cushman yeah. and Wakefield yeah. have adopted a lot of the technology for virtual leasing, for yeah. one-touch payment and maintenance requests, for community involvement. Um, and what else we've seen is, and that's what co-living was so also so driven by, They understood where to go to get their target audience, to get their target True. renter. They were very driven yeah. by social media, by yeah, TikTok, by Snapchat, by FaceTime, Facebook, by Instagram. Mm -hmm. And the traditional large multifamily players were like, we don't that even know happened. what that is. Correct. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <Go right now. laughs> they all know what that is because yeah. of the pandemic. They've all, all of these big traditional property management companies have had to figure out how to reach their residents yeah. virtually, as opposed to driving them into physical offices. And so I guess what I'm saying is these these larger companies, Graystar, Cushman, Wakefield, Lincoln Properties, are validating the co-living space because they are now managing those those assets as well as traditional multifamily. Yeah. And that also brings further confidence, of course, in that space, right? Like, so because right. the moment that like bigger names are moving in, the moment that there are like bigger transactions also happening, there's a lot of validation actually for, for, for that case going forward then. Correct. And so, so, so is that also what you expect to happen, right? Like, so because if you take a look at the transactions that are actually happening, I think they are very sizable transactions now, like, um, is, isn't that a trend that you see like uh, growing going forward or are we going to see again a, a dip or how do you see that playing out? So I think going forward, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to continue to see what I would call niche assets of 100% micro units or shared living, co-living units, dense urban living units. Yeah. Um, you know, they'll be in the 20 to 40 million dollar US range. Mm -hmm. And they'll sit in individual neighborhoods in L.A., in San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, Miami, Dallas, Houston. We're yeah. definitely going to continue to see that. I think what we're going to start to see more of is what I would call blended buildings that oh. combine traditional multifamily unit mixes with either shared living or and or these micro units. Yeah. Because I think what people are now understanding more, not not enough yet, but more, we're getting to the tipping point, is just because you can't afford a studio doesn't mean you're a deadbeat. 
these yeah. these um, young professionals have good credit scores. Um, they have good professions. They just don't make enough money yet. And that doesn't mean that they don't want to be in the latest and greatest new construction building or in the right location. It mm-hmm. just means, you know, if you have only have $1,300 to spend only, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you only have $1,300 a month to spend, it doesn't matter that a studio is $1,750. If you don't have the extra $400, you just don't have it. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see these blended buildings more of these blended buildings that then become, you know, 60 to $200 million U.S. in value mm-hmm. um, that include all these different components of multifamily unit class. And that is also a, a strength for the building, right? Like, so because then what you can do is you can move within the building from the shared living or co-living piece into like kind of the multifamily, the way that your life evolves over time. I think that the, we call that the maturation of the resident. Yeah. As they mature, they either um, get move in with somebody, a significant other, they get a raise. Um, something happens where they have more financial stability. Yeah. But they like the location, they like their building, and they want to stay in it. Then they can yeah. graduate up to a bigger uh, uh, unit size. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that also gives it more stability in a way, right? Like so, because the thinking from my end also went to what you said before: co-living is not new, right? Like so, shared living is not new. Uh, so one of the questions that came to my mind is: okay, well, like you know, it, it, there were a couple of operators that were around already before, and then they 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 come, they grow, and they fizzle out at some point, right? Like so, for whatever kind of challenges. But how do we know that this time around it really is different? So if we, again, if we take a step back and look at this, young professionals have always gravitated towards urban centers. I think that's going to continue to accelerate. Mm. They've always found housing. It's just a matter of how many train stops away from the office they were. And it's a matter of how nice their, their apartments were. And, You know, I've, again, we have three kids, two live in Manhattan, one lives in San Francisco. I've seen what they live in. Um, you could call it quaint on yeah. one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the, expe- the spectrum, you could say, this place should be condemned. Um, <laughs> and uh, that, and I bring that up because they would live someplace else if they could. They either can't afford it or it's not available. And yeah. so, you know, that's what we're seeing with this shared living these micro units is that that they are more affordable and they yeah. are solving a need by being in better locations and that actually helps the building owner the developer also because by densifying the asset you're increasing the returns yeah yeah and and do you have the feeling that a lot of the the developers and uh, the uh, investors are really now firmly believe in in the segment or is there still doubt around you know like the 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 longer term returns or profitability of the segment so we've had uh whatever there are definitely developers who believe in this space globally and you know we work in australia we work in london we work in dublin we work in barcelona portugal Mm -hmm. now rome berlin as well as across the u.s there are developers globally who believe in this space they tend to be younger Yep. Um, in their 30s somewhere. Um, yep. So there definitely is still huge 
interests in the development community. In the institutional money community, there is, again, we're back to, as I said, where we were just pre-pandemic almost two years ago at this time. Yeah, yeah. We started to see a lot of institutional money want to be in this space. The biggest thing that institutional money is asking is, how do I get out of this? What's the liquidity at the end of this? Who's mm. going to buy it from me? We've had two large transactions here in the U.S. that have a significant co-living component in them. One is in Miami and one is in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. They were large transactions. Yeah. Um, and their numbers, their values were driven by their co-living components. So that, that one yeah. is, part is helpful. Yeah, the yeah. second thing that people are asking that's going to cause liquidity is, when is agency financing for the takeout going to be available? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm -hmm. And Cushman Wakefield now is a 40% owner in Greystone, which is a financial yeah. um, debt platform um, yeah. with a dust license. And so we are working already very closely with Greystone and getting yeah. agency financing to accept this asset class. And once that happens, I think we will be truly off to the races in yeah. re, uh, what I would call uh, mainline developers wanting to be in the space. Mm -hmm. And how far do you think are we away from like like this acceptance? I'm hoping by the end of the year. Yeah, well, uh, that's my yeah. goal for 2022. <laughs> it's a good goal to have, right? Like so. Then that, it's that a would... steep hill, but yeah. you know I'm. I, <laughs> Uh, uh, it always seems impossible till you do it uh, until it's done yeah absolutely L looking at like what you have done before right like so gathering the right people around you seeing that vision and really making it happen um what what would you say needs to happen for you to reach that goal that by the end of year you want to have actually like that kind of approval so what needs to happen um we need the cloud of graystone with the yeah. agency financing. What else we need is these asset classes to perform very well in this coming year in terms of occupancy mm -hmm. and rent. And mm -hmm. we are starting to see all, uh, pre-2000 or, or 2019 rent levels. We're already seeing those occupancy levels. So we are yeah. back to 2019 rent levels. We are expecting by the end of August this year to have real rent growth in the space. So, you know, hopefully Q3 and or late Q3 and all of Q4 next year, we see positive rent growth on a national level in this asset class. And I think that will help prove the resiliency and the appeal of the asset class. Yeah. Yeah, and once this is there, then you you have like reduced the risk, right? And right. I, I, it all comes down to reducing that risk, of course, in the end. I yeah. also think, and I say this with tongue in cheek, but I mean it. Um, <laughs> I also think that the more more um, invest, com, investment committees see this asset class, um, the more they get educated about it. It doesn't feel so frightening, and you know, it's very yeah. sometimes it can be very hard because Christian no one wants re, no one wants reputational risk at investment yeah. committee um and so you know they they don't want to stand up and say hey i think we should do this unless they think that they're going to get approval and so the more and more we can be on podcasts like this the more we can educate sure. investors developers operators the more it becomes everyday commonplace the more success this space yeah. will have when it gets to investment committee yeah yeah great and so so that points me at the big question right like so 
it comes down to understanding and that's what you said right understanding the asset class and understanding why as, a, as an institutional investor you should actually care about this so like what would you tell me if i would be like uh, thinking about like really investing into into this in the bigger fund right like so why should i care about investing in co-living um so a lot a lot a lot of people a lot smarter than i am have written a lot of books <laughs> about urban core about like jobs attracting like jobs about demographics of generation z is who we should be talking about today wanting um to have lifestyle and urban and urban experiences and i would say that one of the things that we need to get over an investment committee is not everybody makes the kind of money that the people in the room make and mm -hmm. for the most part 99 of the rest of the world does not and that doesn't mean that they're deadbeats it means that they're either not far along enough in their their careers to make money or they're in careers that are not rewarded by money they're rewarded on mm -hmm. other measures like teachers like nurses yeah Yeah. Um, and that these professionals drive urban economies. And if you, yeah. you know, if, if you have a financial analyst that makes $60,000 a year with a master's degree, and that's what they're going to make for the first three years of their jobs before they make more money, how far away from the office do you want them to work and have, uh, I mean, to live and have to get back to the office on a regular basis when they're working 12 hours a day? And so part mm. of this is, what I would call good for business, good good to drive business yeah. growth is have happy yeah. employees who, who like where they live and can live within striking distance of the office. The other part of yeah. it I would say is, and this sounds um, fairly philosophical, but in reality there's a it's practical. Equality in housing is is one of the basic tenets of civilization. And, mm. you know, having access to that housing um, on a small A affordable level is something that should be, you, you shouldn't have to give up 65% of your salary to get it. That's not, that's not sustainable. And it's not, yeah. it's not right, candidly. And we have yeah. the ability to solve that if we can get financial institutions to back this asset class. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the impact is also bigger, right? Like, like, like you rightly said, it, it's actually going into the economy, it's going into the neighborhood, it's going into like, kind of, you know, like make it livable and, and uh, well, fuel business growth also at the same time, right? Like, right. so I think that's the right perspective to, to have. Um, and that brings me to a different topic, right? Like, so it brings me to the topic of the bigger impact of core living, also on the residential asset class as a whole. And you started talking about that already. Um, but can you help us understand a bit more like how core living and the innovation that happened within the core living segment has also pushed innovation into other residential segments? So we kiddingly, you know, a year ago at this time, we heard large property management companies bragging about virtual leasing and bragging about keyless entry and bragging about you can just tap your phone and pay your rent. And we were, my team was laughing about welcome to the year 2010. You know, this, this is all old on the shelf technology these days, yeah. but you know, yeah. it's it, commercial real estate um, is fairly um, archaic in its approach, very slow to change. And 
So we have seen now, because of the pandemic, we have seen that these larger companies have been forced to change much more quickly than they ever would have if there had been no pandemic. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, keyless entry, you know, whether you use Salto or it doesn't matter, Latch, it doesn't yeah. matter who you use. Yeah. Um, th- not, only do, not only does this technology make it better for the residents, you can get, you know, groceries delivered to your home. You can get meals delivered to your home. It also makes it better for the owner because the if you like the experience in your buildings and the ease of mm-hmm. living there, chances are you're going to renew your lease. I mean, let's remember yeah, that absolutely. lease renewal yeah. is only at like 63% is a high mark for the multifamily wow. space. Yeah. And so you are always turning over, over tenants. You're always looking for new tenants. And so if you can extend that 63 to 65, 67%, that's a real difference to the bottom line in terms of money yeah, on, the re- on the owner side. Make ready, yeah. wear and tear on the elevators, leasing staff, janitorial staff. And you know, one of the yeah. other things that I think we forget um, to talk about a lot is these shared living and micro units are furnished. And so yeah. the wear and tear on the building and the move outs are much easier on the actual building mm. owner than a typical True. lease you know, a a traditional multifamily lease. Yeah, true. But I think that what we're seeing is these these large property management companies, I think what we will see is that somebody step up and buy these these remaining co-living operating platforms. Instead of building it themselves, they're going to be able to acquire someone and their, um, not only their technology and their back of office, which is, you know, something that's lacking candidly on the co-living space right now but also their property management um, mm. contracts and add add revenue all, on day one. Mm. So you, you see in the future of, of co-living actually almost as being an integrated part of like a, a bigger or a different segment in a way. Uh, yes, I do. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And that gives also the scale, right? Like, so because the scale is also necessary to like reach certain, uh, well, economies of scale, revenues, profit and uh, profitability. Yes. I mean, you know, and everybody has their own, um, has their own spin on this. And so, you know, understanding where your gen and understanding where Generation X lives, where they hang out, understanding the way to reach them is on social media understanding that it's ease of using their phone to do everything in their lives and uh, and accommodating your residential experience around that is going to be something we won't be talking about in five years they'd be talking about they'd yeah. be like talking about um does the apartment have running water um yeah, they expect true. it to let's just remember the generation yeah. is the first generation born with a smartphone in their hands and, you know, we yeah. can call it the meanwhile economy. We can call it one touch economy. But, the, you know, one touch gets them a car, an Uber or Lyft. One touch gets them yeah. uh, accommodations on Airbnb or VBRO. One touch gets them clothes on Rent the Runway or whatever other use they have. One touch is Instacart and anything from alcohol and 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 food gets delivered. I mean, that that's something that property management companies – both on the office, but particularly on the multifamily space, are just starting to figure out and understand mm-hmm. and take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it gives them a, like a considerable advantage in terms of the, in the, in the, in the speed they can move ahead if they just 
uh, acquire one, one of the platforms that has figured that out for their co-living co concepts, sure. right? Like so. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Michael, I think which what, what is, um, uh, it's subtle, but it is it's the crux of this whole thing. The developers and the institutional capital who who truly embrace and understand residential apartments is just another consumer brand. It's just it's a consumer product. It's no different than looking for a phone, a car, yeah, a shirt. True. And once they approach it that way and understand who their consumer is and what is driving their consumer, um, they're going to win their fair share of the market. I mean, and it's subtle, yeah. but in the past, it was yeah. you'd, you'd go to your lender and say, here's what I want to build. And the l lenders would say, oh, we don't understand it, but we understand this, so we'll fund that. Okay, I guess that's what yeah. we'll build. And then you said to the consumer, take it or leave it. Consumers are yeah. too much, too. Um, too informed today they're too sophisticated yeah. and this younger generation will keep looking till they find what they want yeah yeah absolutely and like once you understand that of course right like so then you start like having also the success right like so it's almost like uh, switching things around instead of like just putting like brick and mortar together you start with the needs of like uh, the residents right. and then you understand how you need to build it to make it a success afterwards that's a, a big mindset shift in the industry yeah the other mind 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 mindset shift in the industry and again this is an investment committee thing um you know Uh, this younger generation wants to make sure that they have money for experiential experiences, whether that's, mm -hmm. you know, cage mm -hmm. diving for sharks or axe throwing in Scotland or shear sheeping in Wyoming, whatever it is, they, they are not going to give that up. That that's part of their identity chains. Part of that's driven by yeah. social media and Instagram posting. Part of that is yeah. there's more to life than work. Yeah. And so what happens at investment committee, I think that, Again, the more we can experience, the more we can show them, the more um, they hear about it, the more they're educated, the more we see transactions in the marketplace. Yeah. There is a pushback by these this younger generation about the size of the units. Yes, it's home for yeah. them. Yes, they want it to feel home-like. But, you know, it's particularly Generation Z is how much space does one person need? And what am I doing in this space? And, you know, they treat the whole building as their home, not just where their bed is. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so these buildings are yeah. designed accordingly. They're designed to be porous. They want the developers want want to create a sense of community because that's what their consumer surveys are showing by this generation. And so they treat the whole yeah. building as their home, not just a defined yeah. space with a front door. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's also a big, big shift, right? Like you said, Leadership. right? Like, so because historically, yeah, and also culturally, right? Like, so because I mean, for, for me, uh, I've been living in the US for some time, right? Like, so then I moved back to Europe. And like, the biggest difference I feel is that in the US, of course, everything has to be big all the time, right? Like, so that was kind of the mindset in the past. But nowadays, with co living, It is big and small at the same time, right? Like, so because the personal space is one thing, but like the space that you have access to is a different one. Um, and uh, I, I can see how this is like really having a very big impact on uh, how you think about like building and uh, creating uh, new, new, new spaces. It's, um, as I said, these are subtle shifts, but they're so, they can Powerful, have yeah. um, outsized, um, Returns and outsized 
good experiences if you're paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're early, then even more so, right? right. Like so, and that is, I, I guess, where also your passion is coming from, because I can really feel that you, you are really evangelizing the market in a way, right? Like so, uh, and, and it needs to really have these people leading the change. So I'm really curious about the next couple of years, how this is all going to play out. We're seeing very much so um, a revitalization in this space in urban environments um, across the globe. We are certainly seeing building sizes grow again in terms of actual capital stack. Um, and we are seeing um, what I would call endorsement by some of the larger firms in the country, Google, Facebook, yeah. Salesforce, when they look at their, their work base and they, they know what they, they can pay for housing, they want them close to the, you know, the mothership, mm. I would say. And so mm -hmm. they are starting to look at how can they put money into this shared living, these um, smaller wow. unit spaces. We see that yeah. every day then, in Dublin, Ireland, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because then like the and anybody who's working in your teams is of course very close, right? Like so, and you know that there's one worry less for them to have on on top of their mind in terms of like housing and and where they should like. And, and it's not just home. that, but what they're understanding is that you like your job more if you have um, a life outside of your job, and these buildings, these co-living buildings, help support community and give you a yeah. secondary place that gives you outside friends and so you feel like yeah. your life is more balanced yeah yeah and it's also about like mental health and well-being in the end yes. right like so i can imagine that uh it, it all comes together there yes yeah very very interesting and um think, how, how do and i think michael yeah, we talked ahead. about this but you know you get to be older you get home you know you get to your front door you open it you go in if you live in urban environments you know in either condominiums mm -hmm. or apartments You don't care mm -hmm. who else is in the building. In fact, you don't no. want to know anybody else in your building. Your life is full. You've got your own friends. Um, that is not the case with these younger generations. They're very community yeah. driven. They're very socially driven, meaning they want they, they want to be included in their buildings and they want to know who lives next door and they want to create connections. And so again, back to how these buildings are designed, they're designed to be porous to to not only allow that to happen, to encourage that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then at the same time, of course, it's also about like making that easily accessible, right? Like, so to, to make sure that everybody can ex actually access all the different uh, amenities sure. on the community or like whatever is in there. And that I just wanted to touch up on as the last topic in terms of like technology and how, how technology is actually driving also that sort of uh, innovation in, in, in real estate. Like from your point of view, what is actually the role of technology to really uh, push this all to the next level? Uh, I see technology as a tool on both uh, on three fronts. It's a tool for the resident to be able to have a better experience, whether it's paying mm -hmm. your rent or signing up mm -hmm. for some social activity. It's a tool for better biz building management, meaning environmental and climate related. If nobody's in yeah. workout rooms, why are the lights on? 
wire rope shack lights yeah. on till 11 o'clock at night on a Monday when nobody is up there. So all of those sensors and technology, I think, are very important um, from an ecological point of view, climate point of view. And the third thing that technology, I think, um, is is important in using for on the owner side and on the financial side is the reporting of very granular details so that you can make shifts much sooner than you used to be able to. There's no mm-hmm. reason you have to wait till the 15th of the month for a rent roll. And that's that's kind of ludicrous in today's day and age. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, technology to be able to say which units aren't renting, which ones are, um, why is why are insurance expenses so when did those go up why are we using more water all of those things technology can drive through the financial reporting much more quickly today yeah yeah and then at the same time of course it can also facilitate that kind of personal interaction right like so the community building and, and and things that you were talking about before right so final question from me, if, if there's somebody moving new into co-living, right? Like, so thinking about like doing a development in co-living, like what would you recommend them to do when it comes to raising investments? What, what should they really focus on? So I think that the business model has to be what I would call bulletproof in terms of have you picked the right location? Have you picked yeah. the right size? You know, some, some locations, a hundred and, 100 units is more than enough, um, and in some locations can take more than that, but some locations can only take 20 or 30. So understand your location and what the demand driver is for that. The second is make sure that public transportation is something that is readily available because this is aimed at, at, at residents who you know don't like to own a lot of things and believe in public transportation. And I would say the third thing when you're looking at these sites is you have to be sure that your value proposition is really bulletproof, meaning is this truly small A affordable, which typically is 20%, 15 to 20% less than a studio of the same vintage, meaning you can't compare a studio built 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Is it 15 to 20% cheaper than that studio within you know, the same submarket? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so to be competitive also at the same time yes right? yeah absolutely okay well well perfect so um, that brings us to the end of our conversation and um, at the end we have a small little tradition and that is that we always like to raffle something away to all our listeners and you you have uh, something for us what is that so I would be happy to um, do some free consulting here um, on people nice. who want to be in the space who actually have sites identified as opposed yeah. to just general. If you have a specific yeah. site that you would like our input on, both on the economics of it as well as the design and the general Perfect. feasibility of it, we'd be happy to do that. Great. And uh, so that is for the U.S., right? Like somebody in the U.S. that has a, a, a it site. It could be globally. That I'll leave that up to you, Michael. Okay. It could be in the U.S. All right. We, we work globally, <laughs> so that's up to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well then, Susan, thank you so much once again for, for being here, for sharing your passion with all of us. And um, well, good luck on your mission. And let's see what this year and the next year is going to bring for, for all of us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Have a good day and stay tuned for next time when we'll be speaking with Lia Ziliak, founder of the Co-Living Consultant, about creating the perfect co-living experience. Thank you.